So Matthew chapter 16. Now, the last couple of weeks, I'd just like to remind you, because these, the, today is building on the foundation of last week and the week before. If you'll remember, two weeks ago, I taught, we, we looked at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 that saw Isaiah go into the temple, and, and when he did, he had this vision of the one who was seated on the throne. He had this throne room vision of the angels uh, flying around, and they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that when Isaiah saw this vision, his immediate response was one of, woe is me, because he saw the Holy One. And, and Isaiah, who then confessed, I am a sinful man, he was in the presence of the Holy God. And those two things don't coexist together. And so Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone. As he beheld, as he gazed upon the holy God. And that upon that, that confession of his sinful state, one of the angels came and took a coal from the altar, the altar of sacrifice. And he went and he applied that sacrifice to Isaiah and he touched his lips and he, he cleansed Isaiah of his sin. And we talked about how God is holy. God is other. He is separate. He is high and exalted. God is not like us. God is morally perfect. God is completely pure. God is totally righteous. God is transcendent. He, he is high and exalted, high, so far above what we could even imagine. The, even the, the vastness of the universe, the vastness of, of space is, is not even... Uh, uh, th that, that huge chasm that we see throughout the whole known universe, God is even far and above highly exalted of, of even that space over us. God is so far above and beyond. And we as sinful people, we as people who have broken God's law for us to be in the presence of God, for us to be in relationship with a holy God, our sin has to be atoned for. The price for sin has to be paid. And we looked at that Jesus is that atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the one who went to the cross. And through faith in his work, we too can have his work applied to our lives. The sacrifice applied to us by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. And that God now calls us to be holy. We saw that last week. Okay, I'm, I've believed upon Christ. I've had my sins forgiven. Now what? Well, God calls us to be holy as he is holy. And we looked at the example of the children of Israel and how God delivered them from Egypt. But before they left Egypt, before they left that bondage, before they left that slavery, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be blood applied. The Passover lamb was slain. The blood was applied to the doorstep of every house. And every house that had the blood applied was saved. Was saved. Likewise, we too, uh, the, the blood of the lamb, we sang that this morning. Worthy is the lamb that he died in my place. His blood poured out, my sin erased. We sang that this morning. 
God leads the children of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage, just as we were in bondage to Satan and bondage to sin, enslaved in the world. So through the, the work of the Lamb of God, we have had our sins washed clean. We have had our slavery removed. But then we looked at that God led them through the Red Sea. That, that for us is, of course, a picture of the waters of baptism. And then he led them to Mount Sinai. He led them to the mountain of God. And what did he do there? He gave his people his law, his word, which separates his people from the world. That's how we walk in holiness. As we obey his word, as we follow his word, as, as we live what his word teaches, he calls us to be holy. We are made holy by the word that became flesh through Christ's sacrifice, and we are made holy by the word that is applied as we are sanctified. And that leads us to Matthew chapter 16. I want to I look now today, I want to I think about today now as we are holy people, but God calls his people to not be isolated in the world, to not just live as individuals in the world, but he calls his people to live together, to gather together, to live as his people together in the world. And so we're going to be looking at that today, these holy gatherings, as, as Pastor Mark opened the service this morning, that this is a holy gathering even right now. And so we're going to look at this in Matthew chapter 16. Let's look at verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So that's, what the, that's who the world thinks about me. The crowds, what do they think? But then he puts it on his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, bar means son of, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, each heart that is here today. Lord, each soul that is here. Lord, that through your word, not, Lord, not through anything profound that I have to say, but through your word that you would speak to us by your spirit today. Give us ears to hear, God, what you are saying to each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I taught on this subject last summer, 
as we went through a series on the church. Uh, but the elders and myself, we thought it would be good to have a little bit of a refresher on this passage. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. Now, this is actually here in the Bible, this is actually the first time, if you start in Genesis and, and you read all the way through the whole Old Testament, you come to Matthew, you read all the way through Matthew, you will not encounter the word here, the church, until you get to this point. This is the first time that the English word church is used in our English Bibles. And so this passage becomes incredibly foundational to our understanding of what a church actually is. We're all here this morning. We all said we're going to go to church today, right? Maybe you didn't literally say it out loud, but that was your intent. I assume it was your intent. Otherwise, uh, I don't know how you got here. I'm glad you're here. We, we woke up today, or we, you know, we thought about tom tomorrow's Sunday, tomorrow's the Lord's Day. I'm going to go gather with God's people. I'm going to go to church. This is the first time we see that word in our Bible, church. And so it becomes very foundational, this passage, for us understanding what, it, what a church actually is. And, and today, probably more than ever in 2022, especially at least in our culture, there's more confusion today about the church than really in the history of our nation. The meaning of the word has been diluted. The meaning of the word has been eroded. People truly don't understand what a church is. What is a church? You know, we've been through and we've come through an interesting season in our world, and, you know, when the uh, whole world shut down a couple of years ago, and nobody left their homes for 15 days, 15 days, we flattened that curve in 15 days, no one left their home for that whatever 15 plus days. We didn't gather as a church for that season. We didn't know what was happening. There was a lot of confusion at that time. And during this time, some very influential voices within the Christian community began to publish blogs, began to record videos, began to write books, publish books, articles, thought pieces, very influential people within the Christian world began to say things like, church is never going to be the same again. Church has been fundamentally changed and transformed forever. Because now we have this hybrid version of gathering online and gathering on our phone tablets and, and there's, people are never going to come back to in-person gatherings, the world, the church has been forever changed. Now we have people doing virtual reality church, going to church in the metaverse, going to church on Facebook. Thank you very much, Mark Zuckerberg, right? He, he's, he's the savior of the church now because he made a way for us to gather. And all of these ideas entered into 
the church. And truly, it really doesn't matter what any other Christian influencer has to say. What truly does matter is what Jesus Christ says. The Lord of the church. Even though these people may have had lots of books published, may be very prolific writers, what is the one who says he is building his church? What does he think about this? That's what should matter to us. And Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so what is the rock? I know this is uh, really we're, we're reexamining something that we've looked at many times as a church body. But what is this rock that Jesus is building his church upon? Now, the Catholic Church will tell us that the rock that's the, that Jesus is building his church on is Peter, that Peter, the, the disciple here, is, is that rock. He is the rock of the church. He is the one that Jesus has built the church upon. And the Catholic Church looks back to and they say Peter was the first pope. And that is the church that Jesus, that is the rock that Jesus is building his church upon. And we look at this and we say, Peter was influential. Peter was used by God in a profound way. And so we don't, we don't diminish the way that God worked through the life of Peter. But that's not what this is saying. When, when, when we look at the book of Acts, we don't see Peter as the first pope. In fact, what we see is that after God works through Peter and uses Peter, which he does, I'm not denying that, but very quickly, the Apostle James becomes the, the, the leader there in Jerusalem. It's not Peter who calls the first church council. In fact, it's James. And so even when you read through the Bible, it, it's just very clear that the rock that Jesus is building his church upon is not Peter. It's not built on any man. If the church was built on a man, it would be built on an incredibly weak foundation. But listen to the blessing that Jesus says. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Revealed what? Revealed what? It's Peter's great confession to the question, the answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? Who is this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago? Well, was he just a guru who, who had some good things to say? Was he just a, a teacher of morality? Who was this man, Jesus Christ? Peter speaks up. He says, well, well, these people say this and these people say that. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are the Son of God. And upon that profession, Jesus says, blessed are you. He pronounces a blessing 
on that confession. So what is the rock that Jesus is building his church on? It is the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is the rock, the unshakable rock that the church is built upon. And all of us who are a part of his church, we share in that confession. That's the confession that we share. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Without Jesus, I am lost. Without Jesus, I am dead. Without Jesus, I am in sin. But because of Christ, I've been set free. I've been forgiven. I've been redeemed. I've been washed. I've been cleansed. I've been clothed in his righteousness. And none of it is a result of my own works or deeds or efforts. Upon this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. It is the confession. It truly is the confession. And all of us who have made that confession, it is because God has revealed that truth to us. Without the Father drawing us and the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, we are likewise dead and blind. Paul writes, he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, except with the Spirit of God. That, that to even make that profession and to believe that truth, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit has worked in our lives. And so we don't boast in ourselves because we are only, we are only recipients. We are not the actors. We are the ones who have been acted upon by the grace of God. And so upon this rock, Jesus is building his church. Now, here's a little quiz for you, a pop quiz this morning. How many of you remember the Greek word for church? What is that Greek word? Hey, you made the pastor feel good this morning. You made me feel like, a, oh, wow, what a blessing. Yes, that's right. The Greek word for church is, let's say it together, ekklesia, ekklesia. Now, how many of you remember what that word means? Uh, a gathering. Oh, wow. Oh, bless my soul. An ecclesia is a gathering, an assembly. Literally, it, it was a word that was used in government. It was a word that was used in politics. In Jesus' day, it was a gathering of citizens, citizens of a nation who would be called out from their homes to come to a public place to do business, to get about the business of their city, the business of, of their, the, these leaders who would come together and, and do business and, and, and not, not just business, not, not transactional business in that sense, but but get a, a, around about the work of governing. It is a gathering of citizens called out an assembly, just as we have gathered here today, because we have been called out. Called by name, the Bible says. That he has called us by name. He calls us by name. We... We who are part of the church have heard what theologians call the effectual call. 
That, that call of God that goes forth as the gospel is preached, as the gospel is proclaimed, through human means the gospel is preached, but through divine spiritual means in that gospel proclamation, God himself calls a people to himself. And he calls our name. And through the work of the gospel, through the preaching of, of the law and the gospel, we all have had that experience like Isaiah as, we, as the law produces knowledge of sin, as the law shows us God's holy and righteous standard and how all of us have transgressed that, have broken it, have fallen short, and we see the perfection of God and his holiness. And we, like Isaiah, cry out, woe is me, and we confess our sins to God. And when we do that in faith, looking to the cross of Christ, the work of salvation is applied to our lives. God calls us out to himself. Now, while this is the first time the English word church is used in our Bibles, it's not the first time the word ecclesia is used in the Bible. During Jesus' day, there had been a translation of the Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament. During Jesus' day, it had been translated from Hebrew into Greek because Greek was the, the common language of that day. And so the New Testament written in Greek, the Old Testament written in Hebrew originally, but during the time of Jesus, about 200 years before Christ, 200 years B.C., the Old Testament had been translated into Greek. That translation is called uh, the LXX or the uh, Septuagint, and this translation of the Old Testament from Greek, from rather Hebrew into Greek, used this word ecclesia over and over and over again. And so when Jesus tells his followers that he's going to build his ecclesia, though this is the first time the English word church is used in our Bible, it wouldn't have been the first time his hearers are hearing that word, ecclesia. And so Jesus is speaking into a context that had been well established in the Old Testament. And so quickly I want to look at a few, just a few of those passages this morning in the Old Testament. And so let's look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. This morning, Deuteronomy chapter 9. I want to take a brief survey as we move through Deuteronomy 9, or actually the Old Testament, and, and seeing how this word ecclesia was used and how it would inform what Jesus was saying as he's now going to build his gathering. Deuteronomy chapter 9, and of course this is after the children of Israel had been set free from Egypt, they had received God's law, God tried to lead them into the promised land, they would not go in because of their lack of faith, their doubt, their unbelief, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and now God is going to try again to bring them into the promised land. Before they can go in, the next generation has to be instructed in the word of God, in the law of God. 
And so Moses, like he did with the first generation who rebelled and has passed away in the wilderness, he likewise again retells them the law of God, which separates them from every other people and makes them holy. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is. And in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, he retells them this story. He says, The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, the law of God written on that, the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. And on them were all the words that the Lord God had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And so God's people came and they assembled around the mountain. They came together. God God didn't speak to them off as individuals. God spoke to them in the midst of the gathering, in the midst of the assembly. And when they came together surrounding the mountain, God spoke his word as, and this again is the same Greek word, ekklesia, and he gave them his law. He gave them his word. Deuteronomy chapter 31, flip over a few pages with me, Deuteronomy 31. This is now as they're heading into the promised land, Moses tells them that there's going to come a day where God is going to establish you in this land. And he's going to establish a place where his spirit will dwell. Moses doesn't know exactly what, what, what shape that will take, but what Moses is foreshadowing and really prophesying here is the building of the temple. Solomon who builds the temple and God's spirit who, who dwells there amongst his people at the temple And Moses is saying what to do on that day when that happens. And in Deuteronomy 31, verse 10, Moses commanded them. He said, at the end of seven years, at the set time of the year, at the Feast of Booths, verse 11, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, gather the people, ecclesia the people. And who is to gather in this midst, in this assembly? The men, the women, the little ones, and even the sojourner within your towns. And what is the purpose of their gathering? That they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. As long as you live in your land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. And so here he says on that day when, when you come together and, and the, the, the Spirit of God is going to descend on the place that he has Chosen all of Israel is to come together and assemble in this place. That's going to be a big inconvenience. You understand that? For for all of Israel to to traverse from all the different tribes that are scattered across across all 
the promised land, they're going to have to all come back to a single place. How inconvenient. Don't you understand we have plans? Don't you understand we have lives? Don't you understand we've got stuff to do? Nevertheless, God says on that day, everyone has to come, men, women, and children. And what is going to happen? The priests are to read the word of God, to read the law of God to them, that they may hear it and that they may learn it and that they may learn to do it on that day. And that in that gathering, the word of God is to be taught, the word of God is to be proclaimed, the word of God is to be preached. Flip over with me to Second Chronicles. That's a few more pages uh, into the storyline of the Bible. I want to take you now to that day. So he's, he's foreshadowing, he's promising a day, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. He was talking about on that day when, when God picks the place where his spirit will dwell. This is what you are to do. Here we see this day. What, what do they do on this day? Second Chronicles, right? I'm in First Chronicles 6, and that makes no sense whatsoever. So let's, let's try Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 6. What are they to do on that day? What is it that they do? This is the day of dedication of the temple. The temple that Solomon had built for God's spirit to dwell in. Of course, all of this foreshadowing the work of Christ, all of this pointing towards that God's people will one day be filled with his spirit as even now our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the end of chapter 5, it says the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, the, the, the manifest presence of the glory of God. Verse 14, so that the priest couldn't even stand there to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Then Solomon, the king, he says... He stands up to make this great speech and pronounce this blessing and this prayer. The Lord had said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all of the ecclesia of Israel, all of the assembly of Israel. While all of the assembly of Israel stood and he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who with his hand has fulfilled what he had promised. And so here we see, what did they do? Well, they obeyed the word of God. They actually assembled on that day. They, they gathered on that day. They ecclesiaed on that day. And you, we won't take time to work through all of Second Chronicles 6. It's a wonderful blessing that it pronounces. But at the end of that blessing, if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, what is it that happens? As the people of God gathered around, assembling in the presence of God. Verse 7, as soon as Solomon, or sorry, chapter 7, verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven. And consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
God's people had to come together. It wasn't an option. It wasn't a, if you feel like it. It wasn't a, well, if it's not too much of an inconvenience, maybe you could come and gather together. No, God wanted his people to come. He wanted his people to hear his word preached. And he wanted his people to experience the glory of his presence which happens when God's people come together. I have the the ability, because I'm the pastor here, to come into this building at any time that I want, day or night. Often I walk through this building just because I've got something to do or got a do something, so I come through here, walk through here. Let me tell you something. This place is a different place when God's people are here. This place is a different place because when we gather together in his name, his presence, his spirit, his glory, his power is here in a way that's not the same when I'm just here. God wanted his people to come together to hear his word, that they would hear it together, not isolated all throughout, but to hear it together, to be shaped by his word together, to experience his presence together, to worship him together. And then the fire comes down. His presence comes down. He comes and he meets with his people in the gathering Let's look at one more Old Testament passage. Flip over a few more pages. Again, continuing the storyline of of Israel. I love that you're just turning. You don't know where you're going yet, but you're just going. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is towards the end of the the narrative section that tells the story of God dealing with his people Israel. The great tragedy of the Old Testament is that God's people, though he was so patient, though he was so kind, though he showed them so much mercy and steadfast love, they continued to rebel against him, to reject him, to turn away from him, to refuse him, and to go and to worship idols. And God sent his messengers, his prophets, time and time again to to call them to repentance, to call his people back to himself. But they stiffened their necks, they hardened their hearts, they would not hear. And so God, as any loving father does, he brought discipline upon them. The, the great temple that had been set up and dedicated where his spirit came and dwelled, they had filled it with idols. They had filled it with false gods. They had filled it with Baal worship, Molech worship. On the altar that was de- set aside foreshadowing the the sacrifice of Christ, they had offered their own sons and daughters in human sacrifice. They had so polluted the pure worship of God that God destroyed that temple. 
destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He led his people again into captivity as an act of discipline. But even when he did that, he made them a promise that one day I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to this place. And one day again, you're going to rebuild the temple. And when you do, it will not be polluted again with false worship and idolatry. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're looking at after that has happened. The temple had been destroyed, but God had brought his people back. He had reestablished them in, in Judah, in Jerusalem. They had rebuilt a smaller temple where the true worship of God was taking place. And Nehemiah had come and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And then in Nehemiah chapter 8, it tells us the story of them dedicating, reaffirming this covenant with God again. Though they had broken it, they are now going to reestablish it. And so in Ezra chapter 8, verse 1, it says, All the people, what did they do? Gathered. They ecclesiaed as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told, the people told Ezra the scribe to bring what? The book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel to, to bring the word of God. We've, we've come together, we've assembled here as God's people now bring to us the word of God. So Ezra the priest brought the law of God before the assembly, before the gathering, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. He just read from the book of the law from early in the morning, from sun up till noon, till midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is a revival that's taking place. I mean, I want you to think about it. What would it take? How much would God have to be moving in our hearts for us to come together at sunup and to be so moved, to be so moved upon that we are enraptured, that we are captivated at the reading of his word from sunup until midday? Think about it. Think about how God is so moving in their hearts. And it says that there was a a pulpit, a platform that was built for him. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform and that they made it for this purpose. And beside him now in verse 4, it tells the, the leaders who were gathered with him. I'm not going to read their names because I can't. <laughs> verse 5 says, and Ezra, what did he do? He opened the book. He opened the book. What book? Just any book. No, the law of God. He opened the word of God in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. He was standing on this platform. And as he opened the book, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands. They're worshiping God. 
As the word is being read, they're crying out, amen. They're, they're lifting up their hands. They're even bowing their heads and worshiping God with their faces to the ground. Verse 7 says another list of names. We're just going to hop right over that too. But it says that these people were in the crowd, this great assembly, and they were helping the people to understand the law. So they, they're breaking into these small groups and these other leaders are interpreting it. They're explaining it to them. In verse 8, it says, they read from the book, the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense to the people so that they could understand the reading. Now, in verse 9, it tells us the people's response. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this is a holy day. This day is holy to the Lord. It's set apart. It's separated unto God. Do not mourn or weep. And then it tells us, he tells us why they're telling them not to mourn or weep. It says, because all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. What's happening here? This is Isaiah chapter 6 happening here. That is the words of the law are read. The holiness of God is revealed. The law is working. The job of the law is to reveal our sinfulness before a righteous and a holy God. The job of the law is to show us our need for a savior. Our need to be made righteous. Our need to be cleansed and to be washed clean. As they read the law, the people are weeping. They're having this woe is me moment. And they're saying, don't weep. This is a day set aside for the Lord. Then he said to them, go your way and eat the fat. That's a, a feast. Have a feast and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Share amongst each other. For this day is holy to the Lord our God. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. Now here... They're, they're before Christ. They're before the cross. And they hear the words of the law. They hear the law of God. And they're convicted in their soul. And they begin to weep. But notice here that Ezra doesn't have, and Nehemiah, they don't have a gospel to present to them. Because the one who will come hasn't come yet. The, 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 the answer hasn't come. And so he says, just, he says, go distract yourselves. Go, go eat, go drink, get your mind off of this. Get your mind off of this because there is one coming. There will be one who comes. And of course he says, eat and drink, foreshadowing, pointing to that meal that we share together, that great communion meal, the eating and the drinking of the bread which represents the body of Christ, the, the juice which represents his blood foreshadowing the one who can transform our woe is me unto I am a child of God. 
from our woe is me to, to I have been set free. While the law of God has that effect in our lives, we now can cling to the cross. We can cling to the cross. So here in this gathering, in all of these gatherings, God is making his covenant bond with his people in the assembly. And God renews his covenant bond in the assembly as God's people gather to worship him together. And the point is this, that Jesus used a word that his hearers would have rightly understood very quickly. And upon this great backdrop, this great tapestry, this great picture of God working through his people all throughout the, the generations, upon these gatherings, Jesus says, I'm now going to build my gathering. I have a new covenant. I have a new way. I have a new gathering that I am going to build on this rock. And just like the people of the Old Testament, when we gather, we do the same. Our covenant with God is reaffirmed. We worship God and we hear his word preach. And Jesus is building his church. When God's people come together for these things, to worship him as Lord, to hear his word, to reaffirm the covenant. How do we do that? Through, through baptism and communion, we reaffirm our covenant with God. Where that is happening, God is building his church. You are part of what God is doing in the world today. Every time we gather, Jesus is in our midst and building his church. The church is not a building the church is not a hierarchy of government, bishops and cardinals and priests. The church is the gathering of those who, has, who have been called out, who assemble in a public place to get about doing the work of the kingdom of Christ. And this is what transforms just a group of Christians into a church. This is what marks a church when we do these things together. When we come together regularly to worship him, to hear his word, and to participate in the sacraments, Jesus is building his church. Now, I, I shouldn't have to say this, but I, I think I do have to say it because we live in 2022 where words have no meaning. For an ecclesia to be an ecclesia, it has to ecclesia. For a gathering to gather, it must gather. For an assembly to be an assembly, it must assemble. And for a church to be a church, we have to come together physically. Jesus taught us the importance of this as he is the word made flesh. Jesus didn't just stay up in heaven. No, he came down here. He walked among us. It says in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory. We saw him with our own eyes. Jesus didn't send his message on an iPad. He came flesh and blood. Amen. 
There's a, there's a transformative thing that happens when we are in each other's physical presence. When we are physically gathered together. One last passage. We're going all the way back to Matthew. Matthew 18. Back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. We'll close with this today. I've already referenced this passage several times, but just so you can see it. Matthew 18, verse 20. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is here right now because we have gathered in his name. Amen. And so this makes our gathering a holy gathering. It is set apart. It is sanctified unto the Lord. It's not like any other gathering. Gathering with God's people is not like going to a birthday party, though there may all be Christians there. Gathering with God's people on that set-aside place for worship, for communion, for His Word. It's not like going to the movies. It's not like going to a concert. It's not like going to a Spurs game. It's not like going to a lecture or any other gathering. There is nothing like this in all the world. Because when the church comes together in the name of Christ, He is in our midst. He is here. The presence of Christ in a special way. And He is holy. And so when He is here, He makes this place holy. When God spoke to Moses, he said, take off your shoes because you are standing on what? Holy ground. Now Moses wasn't standing on special dirt. But what made that place holy was that God was there. God was there. And when God's people come together, he is building his church and he is in our midst and he is holy And his presence is here every time we gather, whether we're aware of it or not. You remember when Jacob had his, had his uh, vision of, of, of the, the heavens opened, he, he, that dream he had when, after that vision, he, he, when he kind of came out of it, he awoke and he said, this place will be called the house of God. This place will be called Bethel because the Lord is here and I wasn't even aware of it. God can be here, God can be moving, whether we're aware of it or not. We need to come to church expecting God to move, expecting His glory to be manifest, expecting the moving of His Spirit in our lives because He's here. Because he's in our midst. And so when, when the worship begins, we need to press into worship. We need to enter into his house with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Because God is here and this makes this place holy. 
the gathering of God's people is not optional. It's absolutely essential. And there is an oppressive spirit of fear that is continuing to sweep the world. But we, the church, serve the Lord of glory. We, the church, serve the King of kings. We, the church, can't allow the spirit of fear or any other obstacle that Satan would put in our way to stop us from gathering together. There's fear of the virus. There's fear of the authorities. There's fear of what people will think about us if we gather. There's fear of what people in the church might say about this or that. And to that, I simply say, what about the fear of God? What about the fear of God? The people of God down through the centuries have been willing to risk their lives to gather together. The underground churches in Iran and North Korea and China today, every time they come together, they do it at the threat of their own lives. Yet they come together because Jesus said to do it and because there is something there if we will receive it. If we will press in, God is here to meet with us. And so may God continue to grant his church the boldness to be his gathering, to be his church, to be his ecclesia in the earth, to gather to worship him, to hear his word, to reaffirm our covenant with him, and to go out and turn the world upside down for Christ. You know, I find it interesting that Jesus, when he first uses this word, the first time we see this word church in our Bible, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The first time the word church is used is equated with, is linked with victory. Victory. Being victorious against the gates of hell. And there's just way too many Christians today who have a theology of defeat in their life. That the church is going to lose somehow. I'm sorry, Jesus said he was building his church. Jesus, the Lord of glory. Jesus, the King of kings. Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, is building his church. Why would we think that it would fail? Why would we think that it wasn't going to be successful in the earth unless we've adopted some sort of satanic theology? If he is the one building the church, how in the world is the church going to fail? He is the architect, the perfecter of our faith. Because the church is not built on a man. If it is being built by men and built on men, it will fall, it will fail, and it will crumble to the ground. And we see institutions that have been labeled as churches who were built on those things crumble and fall to the ground. But the true church of Christ will be victorious will be victorious and the gates of hell will not prevail. We don't live in a day and age when, when city walls are built. There's not a wall around our city, so though I, we might wish that there was, there's not. Um, 
but city walls were built for defense, for defense. And, and the gates were, were the, the place where they would open and close. And so the gates, Jesus is saying, the gates of hell are closed, but the church is to march against them. That we are to go and to take territory that hell has taken. The gates are not used as offensive when we tend to think that, oh, the world is on offense and the church is on defense. Jesus said that the church is to be on offense. And the gates of hell, when the church gets about doing the kingdom work of God, that the church takes territory from the world. From the world. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And so where has Satan taken up hold that the church needs to go and reclaim for the glory of Christ? Everywhere. In our families, Satan is working. Satan is twisting. Satan is trying to do his work in our families. And we must have that holy boldness and say, no, not in my family. The gates of hell will not prevail against the work of Christ. Amen. Moving on from the family to the community, to the larger community, we have school boards that are run by demons. Why not the church? When I say church, I'm not talking about the church institution. I'm talking about God's people. God's people. Why shouldn't you be on the school board? Why shouldn't you be the one determining what they read in schools? We're going to let people filled with demonic ideology make those decisions? Why? If the gates of hell will not prevail, it should embolden the church to step out into the public square to bring the kingdom of God. So God's people, we gather in person to hear his word, to worship him, and to reaffirm our covenant with him. And then we go out bearing his glory to expand his kingdom in the world, his rule and his reign in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our communities, to the ends of the earth, Jesus said. Go to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's not, a, that's not the work for inside the church. That's the work for out there.